Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church. And we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. Good morning. This is a, as has been mentioned multiple times, a, a time when people tend to come together and remember the resurrection of our Lord. And we're going to take a little bit of a different route today, but we're gonna, I want to tie it together with this passage in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 says, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who has raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's spirit are God's sons. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified in him. It is a wonderful time, always, to remember the death and the resurrection of our Lord. But not just to remember the events, but to remember the blessings that come from those events. And this gathering together around the table to remember the sacrifice and the resurrection of our Lord and being able to participate in life together is one of those incredible blessings we have. And so I thank you for being here and being a part of that blessing with me. We're going to continue on in our series that we've been going through this year based off of the passage in Acts chapter 2 that Jody read for us earlier where it says that they continually were devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Uh, It is incredible to me that when the early church began and began because of the death and resurrection of our Lord, that those people put everything they had aside, every selfish pursuit they had behind them to pursue the will of God. And together, they continually devoted themselves to these four things that are listed here for us that allow us to understand what it is that was most important to them. These people we're about to face a lot of persecution. We know the early church, as we have described in Scripture, faced persecution from the Jews. The Jews would toss them into jail, would falsely accuse them, and even as we're going to study tonight, would even kill them on occasion. And so you have a lot of persecution that came from their own brethren, from the people that they had grown up with, from the Jewish people uh, of, of whose communities they were a part of. We know that later on, they also were going to face a lot of persecution from Rome. Uh, The government, the the secular government, also turned against the early church. And that they were going to be not just 
uh, ostracized, not just condemned, not just rebuked, but they were going to be actually drugged out of their homes and before court and thrown into coliseums where animals could eat them alive and they could become the entertainment for the bloodthirsty Romans. That was their future. We know that many of these early Christians lost their families. They lost their jobs. They lost their livelihoods. They lost their friendships. They lost their communities. They lost everything they held dear. And even in the story in Acts chapter 2, you've got these people who were displaced from their homes that had come to Jerusalem as practicing Jews to celebrate a Jewish feast of Pentecost, as Jody mentioned earlier. And while there, they learned about Jesus and sacrifice and the resurrection, and they decided, I want to follow that Jesus, and they left everything behind so that they could stay there and devote themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, to bread, and to prayer. I have become convinced over the years, that the thing that created strength within the early church was not merely an understanding of truth, but it was a practicing of it, a practicing of fellowship. And we're going to spend April, May, and June, at least two sermons a month, talking about what the Bible teaches about fellowship and what it is we can learn about our relationship to one another by better understanding God's call to being this family of God that we read about over in Romans chapter 8. So, let's dig into that this morning. Uh, First thing you got to do whenever you're talking about a word like fellowship is you have to define it because it's not a term that we use very often in day-to-day language, Uh, and so we need to make sure we have a good working definition of the term. Uh, fellowship comes from the Greek word koinonia. Y'all know me, I don't use Greek very often, but this is one of those places where it kind of becomes important because that is probably one of the more famous Greek words because you have like koinonia cafe. I've seen that before. It's the, uh, a coffee shop for uh, run by a church, and so it's the koinonia cafe. We use that word as if it is some sort of special spiritual Bible word, a word that only is understood by those within the church, but it's not originally that kind of word. It was merely the generic word in the Greek language for having a partnership. So you could have a fellowship or a koinonia in business where you in hand with somebody you work together in order to accomplish or it was the concept of community the concept of having things in common having things that you shared having things that you identified with similarly with other people it, the concept of sharing even contribution in scripture is at one point called fellowship Uh, that they would offer their fellowship, their contribution. It's the idea of participating with somebody and and joining together, together to do something. That's it. Simple. It can be used in a lot of different ways that we could talk about. Uh, the, the, The fact that we've decided to 
uh, do a woodworking project together. And so we, we have fellowship together in this woodworking project. Or it could be something where we have an official business together, and so we have a, an official fellowship together. It's it, it just used at that term of partnership or sharing or, or any of these different uh, translations, honestly. It's used 19 times in the New Testament. Now, that's not a lot, but the concept is talked about a lot more than that. Anytime you read of early Christians joining together in an effort or participating together in an activity or doing something as a community, we're talking about fellowship. It's not a spiritual word, but just a common word used to talk about their relationship. But because of that, it's kind of a hard word to define, I was sitting there thinking, what are other things that would be hard to define? What is a best friend? Kind of hard to describe that to somebody. If I were, you know, if you were to ask me who my best friend is, I have to, I have to say my wife. Uh, no, I mean, it really is my wife. But if you were to ask me why I would call her my best friend, honestly, because I don't have many other ones, but... It, 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 it mostly because of the unworded understandings that we have where we just have a closeness, a, a knit together relationship where I'm dependent on her and she's dependent on me and we're just close. I'm closer to her, I'm more dependent on her than I am any other person. And people could say, well, you know, that's because you're married. Why is she your best friend? I, I'd have a hard time putting that into words. I'd have a hard time describing our relationship to somebody. I see this a lot in marriages. I've, I've mentioned before, in doing marriages, I really struggle oftentimes when I go to marriages and it comes to the time to make vows. Because in our modern-day culture, we don't really make vows anymore. If you ever pay attention to a wedding that takes place on a TV show or something like that, we don't make vows, we make declarations of love. Not, not really, I promise to do this, or I vow that I will be this for you. What you have often, oftentimes these days is, well, you make me feel so good. And you just, you warm my heart, and, and oh, I just love you to the moon and back. And, and you get all of these declarations of love. And honestly, more often it's a description of what you do for me than it is what I vow to do for you. And the reason for that is that we have a hard time putting into words and ideas what it means to be married, what it means to close what it means to have a relationship how would you define love well that's easy adam first corinthians 13 boom got that one how do you describe the feeling of love or to ask describe for me the way you feel about your house to put in words you, it's, uh, 
came across this the other day. How do you describe a color? You ever thought about that? Even something as fundamental, easy to understand as a color, how do you describe yellow? If you were describing yellow to a blind person, what words would you use to tell them what yellow is? Wouldn't that be hard? Fellowship is one of those things that honestly is hard to describe because the experience of fellowship goes so far beyond the description or the definition of fellowship. Fellowship is one of those things that when you experience it, it draws all new purpose and meaning to you that it didn't have before you had ever experienced it in the first place. And Acts chapter 2 is a great example of that. You look just in this story that Jody already read for us, and we're not going to read it again, but look at all of the things that they share in just these few short verses. They shared a common experience in baptism. That day, 3,000 people were baptized. And daily after that, we find in verse 47, more people are being baptized. And they share this common experience of having their sins washed away and putting on Christ and being saved. They just have this common experience through this act of baptism that they can together be a community. They have a common response to the works of God. Talked about how they marveled. They were filled with awe of the many signs and wonders that were taking place through the hands of the apostles. You see in verse 44 and 45 that they had a community that they became a part of as a part of that early church. That they, they were together. They held all things in common they spent time together from house to house, breaking bread. They were together in the temple on a daily basis. You find that they worshiped together, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And they had this common experience there in Acts chapter 2 for the days, weeks, or even months that they were there in Jerusalem together. And that experience they shared was positive and strengthening to them. It was something they enjoyed. It was something that they grew to depend on very quickly. Some of them became more dependent than others because they were displaced from their homes, and so they had to depend on the generosity of the brethren that were local in order to have food, in order to have shelter, in order to have clothes. And so they, would, they were dependent on the brethren there. But that dependency that was created through this fellowship or this community was a positive and strengthening aspect of what the early church was. And it still is today. When we experience true fellowship among God's people, it is something that is second to none. It is literally a piece of heaven on earth. Because what you have in fellowship is a dependent relationship on those with whom you will spend eternity. And it is something that is almost indescribable. We often misidentify 
fellowship, as if fellowship is some, some sort of partying or some sort of just get-together type activity where, hey, we're going to go have fellowship this afternoon at the community center. Everybody bring a dish, right? You've, you've heard that kind of term. It's not necessarily a wrong use of the term, but it is a limited use of the term, and it has caused, I think, many of us to have the wrong idea as to what the Bible teaches we should have in fellowship. We tend to view fellowship in a lot of ways as if it's an extrovert's activity. It is parties and get-togethers and, and just uh, that kind of liveliness that comes from, from being together and eating together. But that's not really it. Fellowship is more than that. It is the sharing of life together. It, it is not the sharing of food as much as it is sharing your food as you share your life. I was talking to a, a couple of brothers last night. We were talking about confessing your sins to one another. And I said one of the difficulties, and we'll, we'll talk about this more in a future lesson, but one of the difficulties in James chapter 5 that we have in practice is that what we have adopted James chapter 5 where it says confess your sins to this idea of an altar call where you come up and you reveal your sin to a group of people. That's not what James says. What James says is confess your sins to each other. So that is me and Chris sitting down and I share with Chris something I'm struggling with and Chris shares with me something he's struggling with and we together confess our sins and that is relational, not confessional. Do you see the difference there? See, we tend to view fellowship oftentimes as if it is some sort of formal activity that must be done within a certain framework, and it's not. Fellowship is the idea of us actually sharing life together. It's openness. It's the idea of my life is an open book to you and your life is an open book to me because we are family, because we are community, because we are unified in the suffering and the death and the resurrection of our Lord. And that relationship that is created between me and you by joining ourselves to Christ is something that we both grow to depend on. It is the idea of placing other people before myself, or loving my neighbor as myself. Isn't that kind of listed as one of the top two commands? Love your neighbor as yourself. It's me meeting others' needs and knowing what those needs are so that I can meet them. Over the years, as I've worked with different churches, I, I've heard a common complaint, which is, well, that church won't help me when I need it. What's odd is that on the opposite side of the complaint, that person won't tell us when they need help. Let me tell you the problem with both sides. Both would be open about it. There would not need to be a formal examination of one's needs, there would not 
to be any sort of privacy between one brother and another because in the relationship of fellowship, we have opened ourselves up to one another. And so it's not about whose responsibility it is to reveal the need. It's that the need is known because the relationship is of depth that we know things about each other. That's fellowship. You grow dependent on one another when that's the way you live. Because you grow in a way that, that you know if I've got something difficult to deal with, I've got Ron that I can call, and Ron's going to sit there and listen and talk with me and share with me some of the things he's dealing with, and we're going to have a, an open conversation about that. And if I have something that I'm excited about, I might call Dallas and say, Dallas, you won't believe what's happened to me, and Dallas is going to jump up and down with me about the thing that has happened to me because the Bible says weep with those who weep and rejoice to rejoice right? And if our relationships are open the way fellowship teaches us our relationships would be open, we will find those occasions for weeping and rejoicing with one another. And the great thing about fellowship is that what it, the, the effect that it has on the church. It causes the church to strengthen. Any group that is close-knit is strong. Isn't it? Isn't that exactly what we're taught over in the book of Ecclesiastes? That, that great book of wisdom where it talks about our relationship with others and it says two are better than one. For if one falls down, there will be someone there to pick him up. And if somebody is cold, they will have somebody near who can warm him up. And a cord of three strands is not easily broken. What's the point of that passage? We use it to talk about marriage and relationships and, oh, a husband and a wife tied together with God. That's three strands, right? It's not really what it's talking about. It's talking about fellowship. It's saying that when we get more than one together, it is stronger than the individual. When the church is full of connected people with deep growing relationships, the church becomes impenetrable, unbreakable. You know the reason I see oftentimes these churches split? And oftentimes, maybe you'll agree with me, I think, generally they split over the dumbest things. You know why they split? It's not because of the issue on which they have blamed the split. The reason churches split is because the fellowship that was supposed to be there by God's design wasn't there in the first place. That's why they split. Because a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Churches with fellowship grow. They grow. Isn't that exactly what you see there in Acts chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9? The church grew and grew and grew because they were knit together, because they were of one heart and soul, it describes over in chapter 4. Their unity caused growth. Well, unity is a product of fellowship. Churches 
would fellowship fill their gaps? Here's what I mean by that. Every person in this room has gaps, has struggles, has difficulties. Every person in here is fighting some temptation. It might be discouragement. It might be sin. It might be uh, uh, arrogance. It might be, I mean, it could be. We all struggle. We all have gaps. We all have holes in our character. That's why we need each other. Because if you think I'm, you can come and you can talk to me about it. And together you can help me grow. And you might have an issue I can help you with. And together we grow and we fill in the gap. There might be talents that I have that you don't. There might be talents you have that I don't. Together, we get things done. But when the church has fellowships, it has no gaps. But a church without fellowship has more gaps than anything else. It produces courage. What I see through Scripture again and again, especially through the book of Acts, is how courageous those early Christians were. They stood up in the face of persecution. They were willing to fight for what was right. They were willing to stand up to people who didn't know the truth and talk to people about the truth. They were willing to give up whatever they had to give up in order to belong to Christ. And the reason they were able to do that is because they knew there were people who had their back people who would defend them. It provides for the needs that might pop up within the church. It frees us to focus. And the best example I can think of this that's just clear as day is the one we studied a couple of weeks ago at the beginning of Acts chapter 6. You remember that, right? A complaint had risen up, a racist complaint, a complaint that some were being neglected for the, for the good of others, and the apostles' response to that was, you know what? You know your men. Choose seven of them who will be of this good character who can take care of the problem so that we can remain focused on the things that we as apostles need to remain focused on, which is the teaching of the word and prayer. And they knew their congregation well enough so that they could easily find seven men. And they brought those seven men to the apostles and the apostles approved those seven men. And the problem got taken care of. That's fellowship. That's a, that's a well-functioning body of God's people. Could you imagine if they didn't have fellowship? A problem, a complaint of racism, it arises. What, what do you think would happen to that church? I, that, I know that's true because I've seen it. Haven't you? My, the issue might not have been racism. It might have been something as dumb as the color of carpet. But you got one group that thinks this and one group that thinks this, and so fine, we're just going to go our separate ways. Because there wasn't really much of a relationship for them to give up and go those separate ways. Churches shrink when there's no fellowship because nobody really wants to be there if there's not depth of relationship. Churches fail more often than they succeed. They're, they end up becoming impotent in their communities 
And then they end up having to focus on all the problems instead of focusing on the things they should be focusing on, which is reaching the lost. Fellowship matters. And there's a reason the early church focused on it. I hesitate to put this question up on the screen. Is fellowship a work of the church? I hesitate because it's one of those questions that that kind of reaches under people's skin a little bit. Uh, I don't want people to misunderstand me. I don't want people to think I'm advocating for something I'm not. And I'll I'll try to be as clear as I can. I'm not trying to open cans of worms in saying this. You know, the term work of the church is a bit of a loaded term. And even the term fellowship is so misunderstood that it's hard to really... Uh, talk about this, but it's a question we got to ask. There's a lot of articles out there who will identify the work of the church. It's three things, threefold work of the church, right? Probably many of you can quote these three, okay? Evangelism, edification, benevolence. I've read countless articles that say those are the three works of the church. And honestly, they're based on a hermeneutic, that more than they are scripture doesn't mean they're wrong I, I think the church should be benevolent and the church should be taking care of its members and the church should be edifying and doing things for edification that's one thing I love about our elders and whenever we have meetings that no less than 10 times in a meeting I'll hear the phrase well will this lead to edification I, I love that 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 is something we should be focusing on as God's people. Are we edifying, growing, encouraging, doing things in a way that bring about growth? Absolutely. You know, I love evangelism. That, that, that's not a, a question whatsoever. One article I, I looked at even gave a long list of things that are not the work of the church, like social reform, recreational activities, business ventures, secular education, domestic relationships. But all of this defining things can make things a little bit difficult. And and here's what I mean by that. If if the work of the church is not domestic relationship, well then should I as a preacher be doing marriage counseling? That's domestic relationships. That's not the work of the church. So as a preacher, that's not what I should be doing, right? But as a Christian, yeah, I, I should be doing that. But so I need to make sure I don't mark that on my hourly chart. Not that I keep an hourly chart. But yeah, it, you get what I'm saying. Uh, you know, if, 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 I, if, if, if somebody here decided to join their child into Little League baseball so that they could have opportunities to meet people and reach them with the gospel is that evangelism or is that social activities recreational activities you you when you start drawing lines in the sand you got to draw a lot of lines and that's the danger with this i'm going to tell you i think it's a whole lot easier instead of focusing on what we can't do to focus on what we should be doing. And let me tell you what that is. They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. 
what we're talking about this year. People are looking for fellowship. And Jesus told us people would look for fellowship. What is it he told his apostles? By the way you love one another, all men will know you're my disciples. How are we going to be identified? By the structure of the building? By the sign on the front? By the way we dress, if we take the, our worship seriously or not? You know, should I be wearing a tie? If I'm not wearing a tie, will people know that I'm really a Christian? Is it maybe by the, by the teaching that we, we put out there? It's not what Jesus says. Now, I'm not saying any of those other things are unimportant or things that shouldn't be discussed or things that we shouldn't consider with, with, with much sobriety and seriousness. But Jesus said it's the way we have relationships with each other that's going to identify us. We're told over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, therefore encourage one another just as you are also doing. We're told a few verses later, warn the idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Hebrews chapter 10, stimulate one another to love and good work. Encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. It's amazing how often scripture puts things in terms of relationship. And relationship is the work of the church. It just is. Now understand, I, I'm not advocating for special buildings used for social purposes, and I'm not advocating for how money should or should not be spent, which is really what most of those debates were actually about back decades ago. I'm making no judgment call whatsoever on any of those things. What I want to advocate as a part of Scripture's teaching is that God cares that we are in relationship with one another. God demands fellowship in his church. It is a devoted activity. It is something we must focus on. Turn with me to one other passage. Jane, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now this is going to talk about the negative side of inappropriate relationship, but the implication here is the positive side of who we should have relationships with. Read with me here, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting verse 14. Do not become partners with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? And what fellowship has light with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? And what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? It says here that we are not to yoke ourselves together with those who are not a part of the Lord's body. What it says? 
And if you put that image in your head of a yoke, of an actual wooden beam that is used to tie together two oxen who are doing work for the farmer. Well, the farmer's sitting behind these oxen, he's driving them, and they've got this yoke that is tying them together. They are inseparable. They cannot fight the yoke. They cannot work apart from each other because they have been tied together. That's a description of a relationship that believers should have with believers. We, brothers and sisters, are yoked together. And we should seek that. Because together we get more done. We're going to spend several more sermons digging into what this looks like. What does it look like to be yoked together? What is it that we can expect to accomplish? How can we do more as God's people join together than we can separate it? Because I'm going to tell you, my experience in the church has been we are great at the apostles' doctrine and we are poor at fellowship. We, we struggle with it. We struggle with it because it is so much easier to just live life my own way on my own terms, doing things the way I want to do them. That's what's easy for me. But it's not what's best for me. God says what's best for me is that I have a deep, genuine, growing, independent relationship with my brother and sister. And if God says that's best, then that's what I want to work on. If you're not a child of God, then it, this whole sermon has been like, what? Because it's hard to describe a relationship until you've experienced it, and it's hard to experience a relationship that depends on salvation from God when you've not experienced salvation from God. So I encourage you, if you're not a child of God, become one. Be baptized into Christ. Have your sins washed away. Belong to him and no other. Let him be in control of your life. Let him be Lord. If that's what you need, we want you to let us know. And I tell you, what you gain from that, not just salvation, it's not just a, a freeing from guilt, a freeing from a burdened conscience, but you gain a family. You gain an inheritance as a part of, as a co-heir of Jesus, as we read in the very beginning. But you also gain a family who's going to rejoice with you and weep with you and encourage you and stimulate you and find some way that we can challenge you to grow as you help us grow. We want that to be a part of your life. If you need the invitation to get your life right, to become a child of God and to be baptized into Christ, please come forward and let us know as we stand and sing this song. Hosanna, you're my king. Thanks for listening and studying God's word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. 
You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's word with us, please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.